Welcome to Business Lens, broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever listened to the number one stock investing radio show in America? It's Motley Fool Money. If you have, then you will recognize the host, Chris Hill, who's joining us this week, as every week on this show, to lend some of his wisdom, his perspicacity. Did you just make up a word? No, that's a real word. Look, there's an easy way to tell. If you want to figure out how much uh, your wife can carry around with her, that's purse capacity. If you want to figure out how sharp someone's mind is, that's perspicacity. Chris Hill, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. I have a feeling that the editors at WKXL are in for a, a hard task on this show because we, we just got into vocab words. All right. What we usually get into on the show is business, investing, stocks, economics. And there was a really interesting story in that vein this week in the New York Times in Ben Smith's digital media column, where he outlines something we've talked about a great deal in recent weeks, which is the prospects for the great reopening, the expected major comeback for the economy from the pandemic-induced slumber we've had for the last year. And what Ben Smith points out is there is a huge comeback underway for digital advertising, that uh, advertisers are pouring a lot of money, especially into digital, and that seems to be yet another harbinger of what's to come. What's your take? It's interesting to see where advertising dollars are going and where they are coming from. And let's just go back 12 months in time. And we saw travel companies like Expedia and Priceline um, and certainly the, the airlines themselves pull that lever back hard in terms of their advertising spend because they knew people aren't going to travel they're not, people don't want to get on a plane. So one way that these companies can control their costs is through marketing. And so 12 months ago, it made all the sense in the world for them to say, look, we got to shore up our balance sheets. We need to pull back on the marketing spend because this just doesn't make any sense. Here we are 12 months later, and it's the opposite for a lot of these businesses, including and especially the travel industry. Um, as you look at um, things like Google Trends of like, what are people searching for? And increasingly, people are searching for travel options. Um, I've done a little bit of travel over the past month or so. And just in talking with a couple of people in the hotel industry, uh, just based on my own boots on the ground research, uh, hotel rooms are flying off the shelves, so to speak. And we, and we see this uh, with not just travel, but we also see this with things associated with summer. Um, so companies involved in selling alcohol, beer, wine, um, hard seltzer, which is a, a huge growth category for the alcohol business world. Um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's all shaping up. And in some ways, these companies can't spend their advertising dollars fast enough. To what degree do you think that this indicator of not only where we are, but where we're going in the coming months is being inhibited by balance sheets. You alluded a moment ago to one of the controllables on the business side being how much you're pouring into advertising. And obviously it made sense to hit the pause button for a while since the whole economy was in hibernation mode. But the position that that's left a lot of businesses in is that 
they sustained some heavy losses if they're still around from last year. So if they're now looking in April 2021 at, all right, we want to we want to capture, we want to ride this wave ahead. Can businesses afford to be putting their dollars into advertising again when they're already in the red from the last year? Or on the other hand, can they afford not to? I think for more often than not, companies are going to, if they need to, borrow money. Um, One of the reasons the housing market is so hot right now is because mortgage rates are so attractive. It's so much cheaper to borrow money these days. That's true for you and me as consumers, as people who might buy a home, uh, not together because we live with other people. Uh, Nothing against you, Matt. But um, just as it's um, easier for people like us to borrow money to buy homes, it's easier and cheaper for companies to borrow money if they need to, to put those investments to work, whether it's in hiring, whether it's in uh, advertising campaigns. So I think for a lot of businesses, 2020 was a lost year for them. And they're looking to make up for lost time. Does it boil down ultimately to everyone's now got a great story to tell? I have a colleague. You you were telling me before the show that you have a colleague who has a saying around this. I have a colleague who has a saying around it, which is he's always asking me, well, what's our story here? Which is a great way of boiling down the people respond to narratives. They respond to stories. There's a reason, the reason that in the Bible, Jesus spake in parables because people's brains are attuned to What's the story here? And it seems like we're all, as a society, mentally coalescing around the story. So maybe advertisers are wise to glom onto this kind of a, this kind of a compelling narrative that we're all jumping back in all together. Is that what's basically happening? That's part of it, absolutely. Um, Morgan Housel, my friend who wrote the terrific book, The Psychology of Money, um, he wrote a column um, entitled "Best Story Wins." And it, it sort of uses the column to provide different uh, stories that, that illustrate this point that a lot of times in business or in science, um, it is not the best idea that wins. It's not even necessarily the right answer that wins. But if you can tell a compelling story, um, that's, uh, that can be a, a goldmine for you. Um, one of the great stories in the business world of the past decade was the story of Theranos. Uh, Theranos was uh, the story that uh, um, the company that Elizabeth Holmes, um, a young uh, student who dropped out of Stanford to start um, her own business, Theranos. And the idea behind Theranos was uh, it was going to revolutionize medical testing because with a single drop of blood Theranos had developed a machine that could analyze all these different data points. Uh, Let's face it, a lot of people don't (laughs) like needles. And so this was going to revolutionize the medical world. Um, The problem is that as great as that story was, the company was a fraud because the machine didn't work. Um, it's, it's one of the most riveting business documentaries I've seen uh, on HBO uh, it's called, um, based on the book Bad Blood, um, which is an award-winning business book. So uh, again, it's an unbelievably compelling story. And that's how she was able to raise so much money in the private market because 
who doesn't love a good story? Um, and I think that, you know, for a lot of these businesses, they've got a compelling story to tell. And I'm not saying it's all going to end up like Theranos. <laughs> uh, I'm not, I'm not accusing anyone of fraud here, but um, in, in some cases, um, businesses um, are going to get bitten in the long run because the story they're telling may not play out the way they want it to. Well, it does remind me a great deal of what Walter Isaacson referred to as Steve Jobs's reality distortion field. He was sort of the master at crafting a narrative, and it wasn't just in his own mind. It's what the philosopher Yuval Harari calls an intersubjective idea. He got everyone else to buy into his vision of reality too. Here's a product. Everyone's going to want it. When they introduced the iPad, no one thought that this was something that people actually wanted. It seemed duplicative. And there was just a great story behind it that everyone bought into. So it does seem like on the one hand, one of the things that could be fueling the perceptions of a great reopening are that there are perceptions of a great reopening. It's a self-reinforcing story. On the other hand, you alluded a moment ago to the fact that long-term, there's, there's likely to be a correction in some places. There's likely to be some uh, revision to the story we're telling ourselves, maybe for long-term investors like you and like people who follow The Motley Fool and, and take your general guidance, it's wise to look beyond, look past the great reopening and think a little bit long-term. Have you started to do that? Have you started to look around those corners to think about, all right, we, we, we think we have a handle on what the story is for 2021, but what's the story in 2022 and beyond? And what does that tell us about our investing strategy? It's definitely a challenge, or at least I have found it to be a challenge because, again, few things are as compelling as a really great story. And when uh, you're someone like me who looks at the business news every day and there's this constant drumbeat of the great reopening, it's hard not to think in terms of, okay, well, what are the businesses that are going to benefit from a reopening? Um, but what I sort of forced myself to do recently was to uh, essentially create a false narrative to help myself make some investment choices. Um, I went through the exercise of, of basically just saying, all right, let's just pretend the pandemic doesn't exist. It's never existed. And things are quote unquote normal. So if things were normal, what are the businesses I would want to become a part owner of for the next 10 years, keeping in mind that there'll be some bumps along the way because there always are. But what are the businesses that I think are gonna be around in 2031? And not just around in 2031, but actually thriving in 2031. They're bigger than they are today. Um, it's, it, it wasn't necessarily um, easy or fun to do, um, but I, at least in, in my case, I feel like it was the right thing to do um, because there are a lot of businesses that are going to benefit from uh, the great reopening. But in some cases, those stocks have gone up recently and they're probably not going to go a whole lot higher. So I, I think for, you know, for people who are, are thinking about the obvious choices like airlines, cruise lines, you know, that sort of thing. Um, those tend to be cyclical businesses. Uh, you want to think five, 10 years down the line. That strikes me as a really valuable exercise. There are many disciplines out there, including disciplines that we worry about on this show that are very good at backcasting. They're very good at 
using that dynamic we were just talking about that human beings are really good at connecting dots into a storyline. And so when they look at where we are today, these disciplines are very good at looking backward and saying, let me tell you, it was inevitable that we were going to end up here. Weathermen are pretty good at this. They're pretty good at saying, well, it's raining today. And that's because we had a storm front that came through from the West 48 hours ago, and here's where we are. Economists are pretty good at this too. They're pretty good at saying, you know, we're having job losses right now. And you could see these trends building over the last 18 months. What these disciplines are less good at, actually what all of us are less good at is forward casting because there are many stories we could tell ourselves that seem like they could be right. So when you go through this exercise of trying to remove all of these mental biases by taking the pandemic out of your mind and looking at the trends that existed beforehand and trying to extrapolate forward what examples do you come up with? If you don't mind sharing your own, your own findings from this exercise, are there some, some examples of businesses that you do think are going to be thriving in 2031? Absolutely. I, you know, I, I looked um, in part at my own portfolio, because again, everybody's portfolio is different. Everybody's investing strategy is different. And so when I looked at my investments, what I realized was um, and this is, you know, one of the old adages in investing, but it's true, which is sometimes the greatest risk is not taking enough risk. And when I looked at my investments, I thought, I like the companies I'm a part owner of, but I could stand to allocate a small percentage of my portfolio towards, for lack of a better word, some riskier businesses, some businesses that um, in some cases aren't really profitable and are um, trading at high multiples, and they may never get to profitability. But uh, this is why we diversify is because, uh, you know, if, you, if you're going to take some risk, um, I, I like to think in terms of taking it in small doses. So what I did was I looked at some businesses and uh, some of the things that you and I have talked about over the past few months, Matt, um, cloud computing, um, uh, sort of collaboration software, uh, telemedicine. Um, so a company like Teladoc, um, which is in the business of telemedicine, was something that a lot of us were unfamiliar with a year ago. And we're all much more familiar with it now, if you've had any kind of televisit with, with your doctor or any kind of medical provider. Um, a business like DocuSign, which uh, I think for anyone who's had to use the quote unquote electronic signature to sign some documents. Um, I think that's a business that will continue to grow over time. So those are just two examples of, of business. I'll throw one more out there, which is, which is one of those things that um, I don't want to say it got me in trouble because it didn't get me in trouble, but it was, it, I did get sort of like a, a, a you know, a, a double look from the person to whom I'm related by marriage um, when I was going through like, here are the ones I'm thinking about buying. And one of them is Match Group, which is the parent company of Match.com and, and Tinder and you know all, all these different dating platforms. And uh, you know there was a little bit of, uh, you, you got something you wanna tell me? It's like, no, no, it's just, I'm, I'm not partaking it's all in business. these. It's, I'm not partaking in these services. Um, every once in a while, I like to just look at an industry and think to myself, well, who's leading? Who's the leader in this industry? Maybe I could buy a few shares of that company. Um, some people like to bet on the long shots. Uh, I like to bet on the leaders. And Match Group is overwhelmingly the leader in the dating app space. An added angle 
that came up over the last week that I think is really interesting in this discussion of looking beyond the great reopening. And in many ways, as you say, looking beyond the pandemic, looking beyond the blip that we've had in the last year is an article that came up in Politico. Now, this is obviously a show where we focus on business and investing, but we can't completely disentangle the world of politics from the world of business and investing. And in the last couple of weeks, those two worlds have intersected in some pretty direct ways around the decision of Major League Baseball to pull the All-Star game out of Georgia and some of the other issues that have come up from corporate America speaking out about voting laws. And it sparked a, an interview with Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, who's a legendary business professor, the associate dean at the Yale School of Management, who convened a conference call of 100 prominent CEOs, which he calculated were about 60-70% conservatives, and asked them, what are their views on corporations taking more of a stance on political issues? Why is that happening? Why are we seeing them getting into this fray? And there was a really interesting observation that he heard back and that he, he offered on his own, which is that the usual area where corporations kind of weigh in on the political side is around taxes and regulations. And he says, sure, companies care how much they're taxed, but that, that issue for them is blown out of the water by business interest in having social harmony, as he puts it. He says that divisiveness in society is not in business's interest, short-term or long-term, and that what they're really interested in achieving is less anger, less, less division in their workforce, in their customers, in uh, society at large, and that that's one of the key indicators that businesses are looking for. They're looking to lower the political temperature. So I wanted to throw all of that by you as you kind of look beyond the great reopening, which is sort of the, the topic on every economist's mind right now. What's your take on this whole issue of where we are politically and how that weighs into your long-term business and investment thinking? You know, one of the things we try and do at The Motley Fool is go below the headlines, go below sort of the, the obvious top line numbers when a company comes out with their earnings report and it's, here's what they did in terms of quarterly profit and quarterly revenue. And, and one of the things the analysts at The Motley Fool try and do is sort of like go below the surface and say, well, let's, let's get to some, some deeper numbers and see what we can find out here. And I think what you just mentioned, Matt, gets, gets at um, uh, an important point because I think for a lot of people, it is easy to look at businesses simply through the lens of they're going to make their choices based on money. And, uh, and look, the, you, you can make an argument that the, that the first job of any business, whether it's a, a, a global company or the coffee shop um, at the end of your block, their number one priority is to make money because if they don't make money, they're going to be out of business. Um, but I think what you just mentioned sort of touches on something that I think really gets overlooked. And that is this idea of how do the employees at the company feel? Um, if you think back over the past decade, maybe eight years ago, nine years ago, one of the big stories around Apple was Foxconn. This, you know, this plant in, uh, in China where iPhones were being assembled and the working conditions there. And I forget who I interviewed at the time, 
Um, you mentioned Walter Isaacson. I don't think it was him, but I, I remember um, interviewing someone from Motley Fool Money who was making the point that, uh, you know, because one of the things I said was, you know, well, w- what's Apple going to do here? Because they're, you know, part of the reason they're a profitable company is because their iPhones are made inexpensively, you know, in at this plant in China. And um, one of the things he said was, oh, they're, they're absolutely going to take steps to um, do what they can to improve conditions. And the reason he gave was because it's not about the conditions at the plant in China. It is about the reaction of employees in Cupertino, California. And his point was, look, the people who work at Apple hate that this is happening. This is getting more and more attention from employees and the management at Apple. Um, it wants their employees to feel like they are part of um, you know, an inherently good company doing good things, making good products, all those sorts of things. So I, again, I think it's really easy to look at companies through the lens of, well, they're going to move their business because they can pay lower taxes elsewhere. You know, like we, and, and sometimes that is true. But I think it really gets underestimated. Um, how do the employees at this company feel? Um, real quick, I'll mention before we wrap up, um, there's a company called Glassdoor. Um, Tom Gardner, who's the co-founder and CEO at The Motley Fool, loves to use Glassdoor as a tool when he is making his investment decisions because it's a way you can go to glassdoor.com, type in the name of any company, and you can see what do employees at this company say about how it is to work there. What do they think of the CEO? What rating do they give the CEO? Um, and uh, more often than not, the, the companies with happy employees tend to be companies that reward shareholders. Really interesting that there is this connection. And even though it's not the kind of thing that, that's easy to put numbers on, to put statistics kind of ready-made for CNBC on, these things do affect the long-term profitability and success of American companies. Absolutely fascinating. We're going to unfortunately have to leave it there. Chris Hill, host of Motley Fool Money, the number one stock investing radio show in America. I'm Matt Robeson here on Business Lens. Thanks so much for listening on WKXL or in our podcast, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. 